Let's take our Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, uh, the outline that you have obviously does have blanks, uh, but I left that PowerPoint at home. So I'll have to tell you when you've got to fill in the blanks, all right? And I will do, do my best to do so. Genesis chapter 3, it's text we'll get to in just a little bit. We we'll probably actually will refer some to uh, the first chapter and the second chapter. It is believed that the Greek philosopher Epicurus in the 3rd century B.C. was the first one to form, to kind of formally postulate the ideas that you have there at the top of your outline that have now been used for more than 2,000 years to challenge the idea that there, there is a good, all-powerful, loving God. In fact, the arguments against that have not really changed much in the amount of time that has passed since the 3rd century B.C. And so, so I, I have it there for you. Here, here is how he put things. It's pretty straightforward. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent, meaning unloving, unkind. Is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So again, you'll find a lot of folks who think this is kind of a lockdown argument. And I've had something of this form pulled on me more than once. And, and again, it, it can take a variety of forms and it can come up in a variety of interactions. But, but it's kind of basically the same. And let's say you are in this conversation with somebody, you are talking about the gospel, uh, whether you're formally witnessing to them or not. Uh, or perhaps it's a bit more informal and you're discussing these things. And along the way, the issue comes up. God is a God who's, who's powerful, yet also a God who is, who is loving. And so often at that point, someone then may interject. Hold on just a minute. You tell me there is a loving God. If God is such a loving God, and if God is such a powerful God, and if God is such a good God, then why is there so much suffering in this world? Why, why are there children who get cancer and die? Why, why are there people who die by the thousands? And there have been instances of the thousands upon thousands and natural disasters. Why, why do some of these things happen? And these can be formed in a lot of other ways, perhaps even taking a, another track. Why is it that bad things happen to good people? This is kind of a similar kind of concern. But again, they're all basically the same. If God is all-powerful, then why is there evil in this world? And if He's all-powerful and there is evil in this world, that must mean that God somehow is, is unkind or disconnected or something other than a good, kind, and loving God. And if, in fact, if God is not able to do anything about evil, and if God is not able to control the universe, why do we even have a reference to Him? Why is there even a God? 
I think I said this a, a few weeks ago when we talked about the atheist. It has been my experience, and that's all it is, by the way. I've never seen a study done on this. But it's been my experience that this issue is the issue that drives a lot of people to atheism. Their inability to deal with the reality of suffering and a God at the same time. And in fact, most atheists I've met, that that was the breaking point. They went through some kind of crisis, some kind of critical issue, maybe even some kind of very painful issue. And they concluded at the end of that, there, there must not be a God. What kind of God would let people go through this? It's a tough question, right? It's a tough question, perhaps complicated by the fact that it is such an emotional question because it can deal with some very real, personal, individual life experiences. It can be made more difficult by the fact that some of us here perhaps wrestle with the very same question. This could be one of those big ones that you find yourself kind of running through your own mind and your own heart. Why, why is this the case? Why doesn't God intervene and stop the evil that happens? Or at the very least, why doesn't God intervene and fry some people, right? Why, why don't we have another little... Sodom and Gomorrah action going on. A fireball here, a fireball there would certainly alleviate some suffering, right? That's kind of how we think. And so we, we do wonder about this question. And so it is, it is, I think, one of the most challenging questions that can come up. And so hopefully, you know, our time, it'll be tonight and next week we'll, we'll make this a, a two-parter, okay? Uh, because of the nature of it, it uh, requires us to do a little bit of theological wrangling here at the beginning, Uh, but like we've done all along, I want to do two parts. We're going to talk some then about the issue. What does the Bible have to say about it? How do we understand these two realities, the the reality of of an all-powerful loving God, yet at the same time there is suffering and evil in the world? And then the second part will address how can you address this? Like, what, What would be some tips? What's some guidance then for how you might interact with a person who is who's going to be asking you these questions. Now, before we get into this, I'm going to say something I didn't put on the notes this time, but it is something that we have said all along in talking about my particular approach to apologetics, to evangelism, to defending the faith. We use the big term, right? Presuppositional apologetics, meaning just this. There's some things I presume to be true, Everybody has them. I believe the Bible to be God's Word. I believe the solution to man's problem, whatever it is, is ultimately found in the Gospel. These are things that I feel no obligation to prove. Uh, I'm not going to get into an argument with an unbeliever uh, and try and convince them that the Bible is the Word of God. Because not only do I have my presuppositions... But I also recognize if I am talking to an unbeliever, they will not believe what I say simply based on what I say. 
In other words, there, there needs to be a work of the grace of God coming alongside. Now, that's not to say you and I shouldn't be prepared to speak carefully, thoughtfully, intelligently, because we, we do have a reasonable faith. We do have, God is the author of rationality, so we do have a rational faith, and so we can address these things. But I would just remind you, when you are talking to the lost person, that person will not buy your argument. That person will not be all in apart from a work of the Holy Spirit. God has to open up the eyes. God, God has to soften up the heart. God has to open up the ears. There, ha- there has to be a, a movement from death to life. And this, by the way, is true about this subject. When it comes to the problem of evil, suffering, and God's love, you and I as believers are still in this position of advantage because we have been enlightened. We know the truth. We see behind the veil, right? It has been lifted from our eyes. We understand the Word. We, by faith, trust in this reality of who God is. So just keep, again, keep that in mind. As you're talking about this issue, no matter how emotional or personal it may get with somebody, uh, uh, understand still what they need. What they need more than anything is not you to answer all of their questions, but for you to speak clearly about the gospel. That's what every lost person needs. Whether they say that or not, that is what they need. And, and, and only after that, then, are we in a position then to speak more carefully about these issues. All right. With that said, though, what can we do to think clearly about the topic ourselves and then to speak clearly about the topic with others? So, number one, understanding the problem of evil. To, to understand this uh, dilemma, supposed dilemma that we have here, uh, what, I, what, what I'm going to do tonight, we're going to ask and answer three questions. Understand, I I could give you dozens and dozens of books that would then amount to thousands and thousands of pages that talks about this issue, all right? I'm not solving it for you tonight. In other words, that's not my goal to to say, oh, now you can go toe-to-toe with the most academic liberal theologian out there. No, you won't be able to, for the record, neither can I. All right? So that's not our goal. I'm not going to, we're not going to lay out the entirety of this issue. If, however, you're thinking, you know what? It's January. I was looking for dozens of books and thousands and thousands of pages to read on just this very issue during 2019. I'm your guy. All right? I will tell, I will give you a list. You're going to need to take out a small loan. All right? Hopefully you're an Amazon Prime customer and you can get shipping free and fast. Okay? Because it's going to be expensive. If you'd like to do that, let me know. Otherwise, we're going to try and hit kind of the fundamentals of this issue. So, question number one. As we're thinking about the topic, making sure we understand what's going on, we want to ask the question, where does evil come from? So, the blank to fill in, if I had a PowerPoint, it would be up there and underlined, all right? Where, the word where, where does evil come from? Well, we can, only, we can go ahead and answer the negative. Where does evil not come from? God, right? James chapter 1. God is not the author of evil. It's pretty straightforward. Okay, so we know 
when we're talking about evil and suffering, whatever form it takes, we can already say right off the bat, we can make this emphatically, we believe what the Bible says, so we can already emphatically state evil is not God's responsibility. He's not to blame for it. Even though he created a world in such a way that Adam and Eve had the freedom to choose to obey or disobey. We'll we'll get to then that, where it does come from. Even though God did create that setting and allowed that setting, God is not responsible for the evil in the world. It's not his fault. So where does it come from? Well, let's go back to the beginning, right? So you have Genesis chapter 1 chapter 2. These first two chapters lay out for us how God made everything. And and anybody want to tell me what's the most often used phrase in Genesis chapter 1? Other than maybe, and God said, it was good. It was good. And God said, let there be light, and we know God did such and such on day one, and it was good. Day two, and it was good. Now, he does change up that formula just a bit after he gets done making Adam and Eve, right? And it says in verse 31 of chapter 1, so if you're in chapter 3, just move back a couple of... Um, and we'll, 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 we'll pick up here with verse 29. After God made Adam and Eve, created them in His own image, He gave them dominion over the earth, told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Verse 28 talks about them having dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, see I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. All right, so this is how the world was originally made. Everything was good. Everything was ordered. Everything was appropriate. And to put this in its context, here's what this means. And then chapter 2 kind of goes on and lays it out just a bit more, talking about specifically how God fashioned the garden, put man in the garden, and you remember that uh, whole section, you know, where God, you have the world's first parade, right? All the animals come before Adam, and Adam's naming all of these animals, and we get to the end of the list, and what does he notice? Looks at himself, looks at the animals, and says, everything else has something of its kind, but not me. It's the only time then that God says it's not good, right? It's not good that man would be alone. And so we know then that, that God creates, He gives us then a little bit more of the story of what is then stated in chapter 1 to say how Eve was created. And then we have this magnificent moment where God performs, in essence, the, the first wedding ceremony of human history, right? He brings, He presents Eve to Adam, and, 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 and upon seeing Eve, uh, Eve, you know, he is, he is in essence blown away, right? I mean, he says, this, this is it. 
And, and when he says, this is bone of my bone and this is flesh of my flesh, after seeing every animal that God had already created, knowing there ain't nothing out there like me, he sees Eve and he says, yep, that's it, all right, that's what I, that's what I was looking for. So what, what do we say about all this? Here's how, God made, here's how God made the original creation. Everything was ordered and everything properly related to everything else. To simplify it this way, especially from the perspective of, say, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were good with God, right? Perfect relationship with Him. Adam and Eve were good with each other. Perfect relationship with one another. Adam and Eve were good with the created order. Perfect relationship with the planet and everything on it. In fact, even though God told Adam and Eve they would be tending the garden, they tended that garden without one drop of sweat. They would have tended that garden without one bit of failure. Every peach was a perfect peach every time. Every tomato was a perfect tomato Every time they wanted a tomato, all right? Everything worked. Everything worked properly. And they, they never had an animal bite, okay? They never got scratched by an animal. They never got bitten by an animal. They didn't have to train any animals. So I say all that to put this in context. Put this, this first part of the world's creation in its context. Everything was properly ordered. And everything ordered among itself. Right with God, right with each other, right with the planet. Then we get to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. He said to the woman, as God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So everything falls apart. In a matter of minutes. We don't know how long they lived the other way. Like, there's there's no... There's no time distinction. It doesn't tell us, um, you know, what the, the nature of time, say, from them being placed in the garden until the fall. We don't have any idea how much time has lapsed. But we do know that in this moment, Eve did something important here, right? First, she allowed a thought that challenged her good fellowship with God. So that's problem number one. She doubted him. Fellowship is broken. Then she turns 
The very thing God said for her not to do, she then encourages her husband to do. Now, that's not to blame Eve for Adam's sin, all right? It is just to show, so in this one moment, what happens? Everything breaks down. This, this, this tree, God had given them a garden that provided everything they needed. They didn't need to eat from this tree. This provided them nothing of sustenance or meaning or significance. They didn't need anything from this tree. But again, you got Eve to think about that God was doing something inappropriate or improper or something less than what a good God should do. And then, then she, she led her husband into the same thing. So now we have a break. A break in the relationship with God. A break in the relationship with one another. And this then comes out in its fullness in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? So you see, you see this break in fellowship, right? It's not that God didn't know where Adam was. But Adam had, had no reason to hide from God until now. And the reason he's hiding from God is because now he thinks something's wrong with him. Now he thinks there's something wrong with the way God had made him. Had God made him wrong by making him naked? Well, no. God said it was very good. So something's broken here, badly broken, in Adam, in Eve, in the way they view themselves, in the way they view their relationship with God. Something's badly broken now. Now they hide. Where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were that you were naked. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Of course. Of course he's eaten. God knows that. But then notice, what is, it, what is Adam's first response? Sin number one, he ate the, the, the fruit, right? Sin number two, he hid from God. Sin number three, it's that woman. It is that woman. I'm telling you, she was something when I saw her the first time, but I should have known she was going to be trouble, right? Because that's what he says. Who told you? Did you eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I ate, right? In other words, he blames God and the woman, right? He blames God and Eve for this. And the Lord God said to the woman, what's this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So notice the judgment then that gets laid down. Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all, and he says this first to the serpent, you're cursed more cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel now I want to point out two things there one notice how God says you will be cursed more than what's that already implying Not only do we have a problem now between Adam and Eve's relationship with God, Adam and Eve's relationship with one another, now we're introduced to the fact that now something's broken about creation. Now something's cursed about creation. Notice it's not just the serpent that gets cursed. You're going to be cursed more than the cattle and the other beasts, but this is implying what? Now there's a curse against them. Against all of creation now, there's this curse. 
when, him, when he then relates the nature of this enmity between the serpent and Eve, now, now we've got this spiritual force that is going to be at work against humanity. Now, 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 since Eve and Adam listened to the serpent, now this one, this tempter, this deceiver, will now be in full force. Deceiving, lying, manipulating. This is now what is going to be the nature of things. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Not to go into this in great depth, but ladies, just think for a minute. Childbirth would not have been painful at any point. <laughs> any of it. Any of it. So, that's, that's something already, right? In, in other words, it's, it's not, I'm not saying that, that, that you know, the, the new life coming is not a beautiful gift of God. And I'm not saying that, you know, when, when, when that is going on inside of a mother and, and that, that baby's being knit together. But ladies, is that all just fun and joy? Is every little bit of that just something you enjoy all the time? That baby kicking and moving and pressing, right? I've had three boys. I've seen a wife go through it, okay? I know this is not all just one big beautiful moment. In other words, that kid's fighting with you from the very beginning, right? Right. So there's a broken relationship between Adam and Eve. There's going to be a broken relationship between parent and child. And then God spells it out there. When he says, your desire shall be for your husband, it's a a tricky phrase. There's a lot of different ideas. But clearly this implies something. There's There's going to be this problem in the way the two of you relate to one another. You're going to have a desire for your husband. Some argue that means you're going to want to usurp him, but yet he's going to rule over you. Others say you're going to, you're going to long to, to be rightly related to him, but perhaps he, he may not have the same longing. There's, there's a variety of ideas, but the bottom line is this. The relationship is now broken. Then God turns to Adam. Notice, notice what he says here. He, he, he never really chastises Adam for blaming Eve. Not that he should have. But notice how he responds to him. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. In other words, Adam, you admitted it to me. You said she told you about the fruit. She gave you the fruit. You ate of the the fruit. From the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat it. By the way, God never issued that command to Eve directly. He gave, he gave it to Adam before Eve had been created. He gave it to Adam. Okay? Notice what he says. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Toil, you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So notice how everything we talked about in chapters 1 and 2, it's now broken. Bad relationship with God. 
bad relationship with one another, bad relationship with the earth. Now, why, why, why do I bring all that up? And I know it kind of took a long time to unpack that. I hope it was worth hearing kind of how that tracked out, because this is the explanation for evil and suffering in the world. This is where it comes from. This combination of events, the nature of disobedience against God, this now being part of the human fabric, a part of of our DNA built into how we are now, is, is rebels against God. We're broken in our relationship with Him. We're broken in our relationship with one another. We're broken in our relationship to this planet. Now, don't, don't worry. I'm not talking about, you know, environmental stuff, all right? What I mean by this is now something needs to be done about the fact I'm not in fellowship with God. Something needs to be done about the fact I'm not in fellowship with other humans. And something needs to be done about the fact that the planet no longer operates in such a way that everything it does effectively sustains human life. It's all broken. All of it. Now, we already have a hint at the solution. We undoubtedly will not get to this tonight. It'll wait till, till next week, and, and, and I'll get to another point in just a moment. But no, notice then what happens at the end of this. Verse 20, And Adam called his wife, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. He placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Strange little part of the story, right? We don't have time to unpack all that, but note this. First of all, who made a covering? They tried to make their own covering earlier, right? Tried to sew fig leaves together. Didn't work. So who had to cover them? God did. So it's it's the first example of an atonement. The word atonement meaning covering. So God has now covered over their transgression, right? And to do so, He had to kill an animal, Tradition would hold it was a lamb. You notice the text doesn't say it. I like it though, right? It seems like that would fit. That that's, that's, the, that's the particular animal that would have been used. It didn't say, but anyway, poetically it seems appropriate to say that. So, so already at the beginning we see God then having to intervene in the human condition to provide a way. Even to help man deal with his sin. I think kicking him out of Eden was for his own good, all right? I, it was judgment, but also because he could not continue to exist in that condition. But then setting that, that cherubim with the sword of fire, what, you talk about an image of a broken relationship, right? And then what is the very next story? Cain and Abel. In other words, immediately following this, what's the next story that we have? Death. We have a brother killing a brother. We have that happening because the manner in which God had now prescribed a means of having fellowship with him, for whatever reason, Cain didn't do it right, and Abel did. God looked upon Abel's sacrifice and gift favorably, not upon Cain's. This then caused rage in Cain. He killed his brother. 
Chapter 5 is then a genealogy. We've talked about this genealogy before. It's significant because it's the Bible's first obituary. Such and such begat such and such, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Then tell me what is chapter 6 about? Can anybody tell me right off the top of your head what's chapter 6? The next story, big story in the book of the Bible? Noah. What happens when you get to chapter 6? Go ahead and, go ahead and t- turn, turn to that first part. Look at verse 5. This lead-in then to the story of the flood. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. Wow. We've come a long way, right? We've come a long way from those early days where Adam and Eve were always right with one another, they were always right with God, and the planet cooperated at every turn. Now what is God going to do? God's going to turn the very conditions of that planet on humanity to wipe it out, save Noah and his family. Now again, I bring all this up because because I think it's helpful as we jump into this, as we think about this, I just want to make sure that we here understand where is it that evil comes from? Well, its originating point goes back here, right? It goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and goes to the garden. And now we have this reality that there is these spiritual forces at work for, you know, to, to talk about then demonic temptation, right? This, this work of the evil one against God and against His creation. But rather than lay the blame of evil and suffering at the feet of God, at whose feet do we lay it? Mine. Yours. You do know that apart from Christ, there's not a whole lot of positive things the Bible says about humanity. Apart from Him saving us, other than that, not a whole lot of positive things. I mean, yes, we're made in God's image. Yes, who is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, there's a few bits here and there, but largely it's more like Genesis 6-5. It's more this kind of thing. Where does, where does evil come from? Evil springs from the human heart. We're capable of all kinds of atrocities. We're capable of all kinds of evil. And so this, this is then where it begins. Now, I want to do one other thing, and then we'll, we'll stop. But part B, I just want to fill this in for you really quickly because I think it's helpful then to ask the question, what kinds of evil are there? And I just want you to note, philosophers do this. They kind of break this down into three basic kinds of evil. There's natural, right? So if you're filling in the blank there under letter B, three kinds of evil. Um, So if you're filling in letter B, what kind of evil is there, right? If you're filling in then those bullets, first bullet is the word natural. There's natural evil. What do I mean by that? I mean natural disasters. You know, catastrophes that happen because of the processes of the planet. So you think hurricanes, you think earthquakes, you think floods, uh, you think fires, you think mudslides, you you think tsunamis, you think typhoons. These are the things that you think of. That, That part of the suffering that people deal with, part of the evil that people deal with, 
the brokenness people deal with is, is the nature of a broken planet. And the planet is not functioning as it was in Genesis 1 and 2 because the stain of sin is pervasive and even into the functioning of the planet itself. So there's natural disasters. Number two, circumstantial evil. What I mean by that, then there are circumstances of life that you may face. Your own sickness. That may not be of your own fault, all right? Some sickness we may face may be of our own fault, right? I mean, some medical problems we face are our own fault. I had to get stitches in my leg because I tried to throw a garden tool on the ground to make it stick in the ground, and it stuck in my leg instead, all right? So that's not, that's my fault, all right? That's, that's not the fault of anybody else. Okay, that's my fault. But some things are not, right? I mean, there could be any number of, from an accident to some kind of condition that was not of your own making and you couldn't have stopped it. Perhaps even something like losing a job, you're getting laid off, business goes under that you're working for. These kinds of things I would label as circumstantial evil. And then finally, there's moral evil. The word moral may sound like a weird way to put it. What I mean is there's violations of morality. This, by the way, the, the two kind, the, the, this, this I think is really a tripping point for a lot of people. In other words, the awful things that one person does to another. So in this, you know, we'd put all kinds of crime. In this, we'd put, you know, ch- child abuse. Um, uh, but, but even the kind of suffering you may face at the hands of people that's not necessarily like physical, but nonetheless tormenting, all right? Now, next week, we're going to then get into letter C, which is what is the solution, and we're going to take a look then at how God has moved in Christ to solve the problem of evil. Now, you may wonder, so why, why are you doing all this? I'm giving a bit more time to this than I normally would in these sessions we've done, because I want to make sure we have a thorough grasp of what the Bible says, not all exhaustive grasp, but at least a thorough one that helps us understand where evil comes from, why we have it, how God has solved it, because that's how you engage in a conversation with somebody. When you're giving the gospel to somebody, you're going you're gonna to want to then address these issues by saying, well, there's suffering in the world, not because there's something wrong with God, but because there's something wrong with you. You may not be that direct, but you know what I mean. Is there something wrong with humanity? There's sin and brokenness in humanity, and and in life itself, and you, you want to be able to sell, and that, that may be of all different kinds of suffering, but God has provided a solution. It's, it's not like God is allowing suffering to go unabated. Just because He's not solving suffering like you want Him to solve it doesn't mean He hasn't solved it. So, that's where we'll turn next week to look at how God has solved the problem of suffering, and He has. He has. He has solved it. There is a solution to it. And we'll take a look at that next Sunday. So hold on to these notes, and uh, we'll pick up with this outline next Sunday night. Hopefully I'll remember the PowerPoint then. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us tonight. Grateful again for time in your word, time together. Lord, I do pray that you would help, help give us understanding of these things and, and help us to see how your word presents the, this, this picture of evil and suffering in this world and how, yet at the same time, you and your goodness in Christ have provided the solution to it. And I pray that as we get in conversations with folks, and if this issue is brought up, that you would that you'd give us wisdom, give us compassion, uh, but also courage to speak carefully and biblically uh, to the gospel. And Father, we thank you now for the week that lays before us. We, we enter into it by faith, trusting in you as our, our good God and a sovereign God, a God who goes before us. And may we live uh, 
uh, these days to come for your glory. Use us as you see fit, as tools in your hands to accomplish your divine purpose. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.